Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Hey, Look, I'm here I, too. Uh, I'm here I'm, as well. I'm also We're here. helping, George. And we don't put on voices when we read ads. Look, we know you want to get to the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. Now, what more do you people want from us? If Rihanna Giddens' aria code was every week, we'd be screwed. They hired a woman, ladies. <laughs> Come on. So, they, you got to start getting into so this. It's so good. Aria code. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Check like, it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And 20 bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. Ooh. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on pomegranate molasses and fancy tahini. That's true. That's not so a joke. The, the original ad had something about hair products. And I'm almost bald. So I don't understand what you're trying to go. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if we're going to talk about hair products in this room, I'm probably the one that consumes the most of everyone. So, yeah. So, ten bucks buys my hair products for a week, guys. You can do it. Don't think you can give? Oh, yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most so of all, the retweeting is actually very environmentally sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reduce your carbon footprint. Retweet. Exactly. Just use Especially if you use real birds. Over and over again. Mm -hmm. yeah. And most of all, keep listening to America's talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside studio on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight it's a chalk talk all about gig work and why its prevalence in the opera world could mean trouble for small companies in California right now. But first, joining us via phone from Texas is soprano Tamara Wilson, where she headlines Houston Grand Opera's upcoming production of Aida. The Richard Tucker award-winning soprano has sung leading roles at Lyric Opera of Chicago, The Met, La Scala, and now, at long last, debuts as an interview guest of Opera Box Score, really moving up in the world. Plus, in the two-minute at drill. Will Anna Trebko ever do new music? And why are there only eight of the top 100 conductors in the world uh, uh, women? We'll examine those questions and more. And of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687 or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. Hey, Oliver, it's just you and me tonight. There was a football thing that happened yesterday. <laughs> There's a football thing happening I, today. I understand I a team from Wisconsin competed with a team from uh, Washington State. That sounds like a football team matchup yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. There's another football it's team very matchup. Very exciting. It's like across the country. You the know? college like... football playoff national championship is happening right now. Do you want to mm -hmm. know who's playing? Uh, go Clemson roll, roll Tigers. Tide? Roll Tide? Yeah, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> If it's not the tide, I don't know about it. You know, what I just I mean? want to. I do want to say something seriously though. That uh, Serena Williams, one of my heroes, oh. won her first uh, title since giving birth. Uh, it's been three years, I think, since she gave birth at this point, or almost, over two years. And uh, yeah, she's she's getting back into it, and she donated her winnings to the recovery uh, for uh, the climate crisis in Australia. Oh, that's great. That's really good. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, really nice to see uh, people using their platforms to do good. Unlike us. <laughs> let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. 
soprano Tamara Wilson is quickly gaining international recognition for interpretations of Verdi, Mozart, Strauss, and Wagner. She is the 2016 recipient of the Richard Tucker Award, and she has made her debuts at La Scala, uh, Lyric Opera Chicago, the Metropolitan Opera. She returns to Houston Grand Opera, and this summer she uh, makes her role debut as Isolde in Santa Fe Opera Productions. Choice of Tristan und Isolde, uh, an opera which Tamara Wilson describes as a rom-com minus the rom, <laughs> or minus the com. Would you, Is that what you say about it? <laughs> yeah. It's not really the com part. Yeah. Speaking of football, you guys did better than our Texans did the other day. Uh, <laughs> rest uh, in peace. Well, see, here's the, the premise of this show, uh, Miss Wilson. Can I call you Miss Wilson? <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, we're supposed to be talking about opera as uh, sports radio talks about the sports. Uh, mm-hmm. But the only sports that I care about are tennis and uh, men's gymnastics. And oh, figure uh, skating. <laughs> and figure skating, yeah. I like the figure skating, yeah. And if it's, and if it's, not, uh, if it's not Bama, I don't know about it. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's, a rough, it's a rough day for us. There, there are actually other panelists who are very involved in sports, but we just got this dud of a duo tonight. So. <laughs> but welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're in rehearsals for Aida right now, but that's an opera you've sung like a thousand times. So you don't need to rehearse. Not at all, actually. It was kind of nice. <laughs> I was like, just tell me where to go and we'll do this. Okay, cool. <laughs> so um, after we finish our conversation, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that thing that's happening in California with that new law for uh, gig work and how it sort of shut down the production of the records, which is an opera by a woman, right? So I think that's Apple why. Smith, I yeah. think that's the real reason why they shut it down. But um, <laughs> maybe speaking of gig work and like singer finances, you wrote this really lovely article for Eleonora Magazine. I had never heard of Eleonora Magazine, but now like I'm a fan. I'm hoping that's how people find Opera Box Score. They're a fan mm-hmm. of Tamara Wilson, and then they say, "Oh, this uh, this podcast <laughs> is so cool with two guys that don't know anything about sports." <laughs> Yeah, no, that that was a, a really nice surprise. I had a, a, actually a female conductor friend of mine who was approached by them, and then she did a series of friends um, kind of doing these articles for her. And, uh, yeah, I'd never heard of Eleonora, Eleonora magazine before, and I was like, oh, this is really nice. It's a, a platform you don't usually see um, of professional women of all types of professions kind of Mm -hmm. supporting each other and kind of giving you a backdoor into what our job actually entails because i think people just see opera as like the jet setting glitz and glamour of it all and (laughs) you you don't see the singer struggling to like understand a tax form or a social security form in french or you know that kind of stuff So, I didn't even think about the different the, languages until there are so now. many <laughs> ways this conversation can go, and I'm going to let you pick. One is, um, what was it like for you to be like in Germany and to have to try to figure out how to like do your laundry or to like you said like get a bank account? That's one area we can go, or you can choose a different lane and you could tell us about how uh, because you said like we think of opera singers as being like this jet setting career. Uh, but you have really opened up to your fans and been made yourself very vulnerable and spoken a lot of truth about what it's like, what this business is like and what the struggles are. And uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about things you don't want to talk about, but uh, so I'll let you go which whichever direction you want to go. Yeah, no worries. Um, uh, the laundry situation in Europe is always exciting because there's, <laughs> there's a billion buttons on a machine and you're like, just please wash my clothes. That's all. Just wash them. Um, yeah, no, but I, 
learned early on when I started that nobody really knows how to do this job. Mm. They know how to sing because that's what we've been taught in school mm-hmm. for forever. But the minute you get out there, you're a self-employed CEO of your own company, and you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was kind of the bold young little singer when I was little, and I asked, like, all of these kind of stars that I was working with, hey, how does any of this work? And I was lucky enough to have some really great feedback from some sopranos and mezzos, um, Joyce Donato, Christine Gerke, and Laura Claycomb early on, who were just a vat of information. And I realized, you know what, if I don't know this stuff and I'm in like, I've been in a young artist program, I'm getting all these gigs, maybe other singers don't know this either. So I started um, just talking to my friends on Facebook, literally, about like, hey, I'm going to this city, what do I need to do? Or does this company tell you about, like, their Social Security? Do they have a tax person? You know, just random things that you wouldn't think would be necessary to ask, mm-hmm. but are necessary. Because literally, no, there's, no, um, there's no cubicle <laughs> office for singers to sit around in and, like, ask each other stuff because we're all <laughs> separated. There's and no water cooler. Very different careers. <laughs> Do you, do you, obviously a lot of that I think is all the financial stuff, uh, mm-hmm. concerned with, you know, surviving in different cities, um, being underpaid frequently, especially as a young singer. Um, mm-hmm. but also I imagine there's a lot that you have to take into consideration, um, as far as just maintaining a balance of a social life, you know, being a singer and a, a person. Did you ever feel social like you life? had to struggle with that? What is social life? <laughs> <laughs> was that yeah, something no, you had to, had to like give up on? Or? Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, you go to a new city every four to six weeks. Um, and when you're first starting, it's really hard because you're young. You don't really know anybody. I had the experience singing very early on that everybody I was singing with was in their 40s. Well, I was in my early 20s, so I'd want to go out, and everybody's like, I'm going back to the hotel to sleep. And now that I'm <laughs> closer to that age, I understand them completely. <laughs> sleep is the best part of our job. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of nice, though, once you start working, that you kind of sing around with the same people all the time, and you do build these friendships that you just kind of have sparingly. You see people every two to three years. Sure. Yeah. I would say that we, the comment you made a minute ago about Joyce Donato, Christine Gerke, and Laura Claycomb, I don't know Laura Claycomb that well. I know sort of of her, but uh, I'm mm-hmm. more familiar with Christine Gerke and Joyce Donato because they're so, they make themselves so available, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I feel like that's a very American thing. And Definitely. I, and I wonder, and like you are now like in this super elite category of singers who does a certain repertoire and is sought after to sing extremely difficult roles. And you, like Christine Gerke, uh, just seem to be like an open book. Um, (laughs) And I don't know if you have dealt with any backlash because of that, or if you've been perceived differently by, you know, colleagues from other nationalities, etc. Sure, sure. Um, Basically, 
if you put anything on the internet, there's going to be backlash to it. You, <laughs> you could say, I love puppies, and there's going to be people in the comments saying, you horrible, you hate cats, you're a horrible person, you know. So, yeah, with, with being open does come a certain amount of responsibility and a certain amount of, um, I think, authenticity that you need. Um, and I, I definitely know that Instagram and Facebook can be used for good, and it can also be used for evil. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I when I first started um, like my uh, YouTube channel and all that stuff, I literally only had in mind getting to younger singers who were just starting out or still in school to kind of give them a heads up that this business is not all rainbows and um, roses thrown at you on stage. Well, on that note, we actually have a, uh, a question uh, very specifically about this um, uh, from listener Mary Beth, who posted on our Facebook page. And uh, to any of our listeners out there right now, uh, follow our Facebook page. <laughs> uh, Mary Beth asks, uh, what was your biggest struggle as a young singer and how did you overcome it? <clears throat> it's funny. I think the biggest struggle that any singer has is some amount of insecurity. And I would love to say that it has been overcome, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think that's an ongoing process. Um, when I first started, I was so green to this uh, whole thing because I, I was going to be a teacher. I wasn't going to be a singer. Um, that I knew literally like nothing, just nothing. <laughs> and my first big competition was a Met. I was like 22. I, I just, it was so, so green. And I kind of made my way my first, I'd say five or six years through that, kind of just wide-eyed learning as much as I could. But then expectations started to be brought in. <laughs> and um, that's when I those. started to be very self-critical of myself. Like I could make a one-word mistake in a huge four-hour opera, and I would go home and just be like, oh, you're the worst. I don't understand why anyone's hiring you. You just get into this, like, cycle of self-doubt. Yeah. And, yeah, so that I've I've been learning to deal with a lot more. Um, and it's it's mostly becoming as prepared as you can and then realizing that you're not perfect, nor is anybody else. People come to see exciting live theater, and that's all you can do. Yeah, I mean, there, I, there's so many places to go with that, but I just want to say that just from watching some of your Tammy Talks videos and remembering what your Twitter presence used to be like, I understand that you're not really on Twitter anymore. That's sort of... It's because all the politics was making me so angry in the morning. <laughs> okay. That, that's the mood. That's the mood right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's always been like this sort of generosity about your persona um, on social media and on YouTube. And I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like this business sort of thrives on people having so little information. Like, it keeps mm. people, the powerful people, powerful, you know? Mm. Like the conductors, the stage directors, the artistic directors. Uh, they really do thrive on people having little information and being insecure. And so the fact that you just said that you dealt with insecurity, and we all, as, like, fans of your singing, think, why would you insecure like why would, i mean like you like can hold a high c you know laying on your back and, and whatever you know for like 30 seconds and um it's just you what you do is so mind-blowingly impressive 
that, well, thank you. that that you would have insecurity. So um, that makes me mad that you did, <laughs> but I also understand that that's that's really this business, you know. Oh, totally. But I think I think that's just artists in general. I, if I came out there and was like, "I'm amazing, I'm perfect," it wouldn't be anything anybody wants to watch. <laughs> it's something that I'm always striving to be better, and I'm always learning. And I think that was the other reason I was so curious and just didn't mind asking questions to people. Yeah. Like I even um, I went to Opera America and asked, like, "Does anybody have a list of like what the average?" median uh, salary of an opera singer is and they're like oh we don't have that information we don't talk about that yeah Yeah, Mm. you can't and i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) but but you're willing to take my money for this workshop though right (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) no but i mean can you imagine somebody like i don't know grace bumbry or joan sutherland like in the age of YouTube, uh, like having their own YouTube channels and just talking to their fans. Oh, I my mean, God. Could you Im- <laughs> oh, it'd be so much classier. <laughs> well, I mean, like I remember listening to radio interviews with like the great, you know, the golden age, whatever singers from mm-hmm. like the 60s, 70s and 80s. And there was just such a arrogance and pomposity that <laughs> just came with the territory. And I loved it. I thought it was so yeah. cool. Uh and you are not that. And I feel like we're going towards that. I think we're we're so desperate to get people, give people access to what we do that we just want them to see. We're human beings. We put our pants on one leg at a time, just like yeah. you, you know. But then you get up there and you have to do this extremely difficult, so hard to prepare in a different language with stamina and with stage direction and wearing costumes and having people shouting at you from a prompter's box and having to watch a conductor, all these different things that are coming, all these different things that you have to focus on and concentrate on. And it is so hard. You would understand why there are people in this business who, if they are successful, they just want to say, you know what, I did it. I'm not going to share any of this with you, you know? Yeah, yeah. There is a bit of that. It's a sense of... You know, I worked hard to be where I am, and I don't want you to become competition. I, yeah. I can understand that. But um, as far as the whole diva situation, I think the public, if we have anybody who's in a pseudo-public eye, we want them to be this story that we've made up for what they should be, you know? Right. And I think that's what all the 50s and 60s divas did. They made them seem like so you know, mysterious mm-hmm. and classy and just this kind of, like, unattainable person. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I just, I don't think, I think there may be one or two people who do that in our profession and do mm-hmm. it well, but um, <laughs> that's not me. My whole family's <laughs> in Kansas. I, uh, you know. So we're going to building go- IKEA furniture this week. <laughs> you are? Oh, I want to help you. I love doing that. <laughs> Tamara Wilson is just okay. like us. Yeah. Um, we're going to go to a, a break soon, but before we do, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, can you think of either a production or a young artist program or even just a specific collaboration you had with somebody that felt like the turning point for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do I say that now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you if you we're want to. Break it up okay. Um, a cliffhanger. <laughs> you will never know. Um, yeah, I, I would probably say when I worked at English National Opera in the production of Forza there, um, it was with uh, the producer, director, um, Cleek Stobiedo. Oh. Who, yeah. Was it weird? <laughs> who has his own reputation. Yeah. And I had other singer friends of mine going, oh, you know, 
just to warn you, you'll probably be with an inflatable dolphin on stage doing things that you <laughs> didn't think you'd be doing. And I was like, oh, okay. But we got to the first rehearsal, and he was one of the first major directors who kind of took me under his wing and really focused, focused on the acting for me because it was always about singing and technique and being, you know, a good singer. And he was the first person who kind of was like, oh, you can be a good performer, too. You don't just have to stand up there and sing. And um, I really, really thank him for that. And it was the first time that I had gotten, you know, some recognition majorly for what I'd done, and uh, singing-wise. And then, yeah, I think that was, like, kind of the moment in my career was like, oh, I am going to do this for a living. Awesome. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, can you stick around for like five more minutes? Sure thing. Okay, great. We have to go to break, Weston. I, yes, we're going to go to a break, but we'll be back with more from Tamara Wilson live on the air on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia. For the first time in over 30 years, Opera Philadelphia presents special concert performances of the massive masterpiece, Verdi's Requiem. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> this dramatic exploration of the Roman Catholic Mass for the Dead comes to life with over 80 instrumentalists, 100 choristers, <laughs> and the powerhouse vocals of four of opera's rising stars. I want to say these people have risen already. Leah Crocetto, Daniela Mack, friend of the show. Oh, friend of the show, Daniela yes. Mack. Yes. Just top-notch. Uh, Absolutely top-notch. Evan Leroy Johnson and In Sung Sim. Opera Philadelphia's own Maestro Corrado Rivaris conducts in celebration of his 20th anniversary with the company. Here for yourself, why NPR... If they say something, then you've got You know it's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Why NPR calls the Requiem a conductor's dream come true. And so it is. Verdi's Requiem at Opera Philadelphia for just two performances, January 31st and February 2nd. Don't miss it. In the historic Academy of Music. Get tickets today at operaphila.org. You know, I just clear, I'm clearing some stuff off my DVR because I feel like it's the holidays are coming. I'm mm-hmm. just a lot mm-hmm. going on there. And I just watched the Requiem from the Hollywood Bowl conducted by Dudamel with... Uh, with Michelle DeYoung. Who died that time. <laughs> and um, what's his name? Victoria Gugolo. Grabby. Grabby. Yeah. Ba- yeah. Grabby. 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 And uh, I forgot who the bass was. Uh, Ilibraldo D'Arcangelo. And the soprano was somebody I'd never heard of. I probably should know her name. And she was really good, but she was not like name recognition soprano. Well, you know, I, w- God, I would call. <laughs> I would call Gardy's Requiem probably top, th- top two re- requiems yes. ever done. Well, right? it, is, it is a conductor's dream come true. For sure. End of ad. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. You're listening to Opera Box Score. We are live on the phone right now with Tamara Wilson when we're talking. We're continuing our conversation from the first block. If you're just tuning in now, uh, Tamara, are you still there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So there have been so many milestones in your career that we could talk about. I mean, the Richard Tucker Award is sort of a big deal, and I love that ceremony, and I love that event. Uh, But you're right now at Houston Grand Opera, and you are returning to a place. You did did the Young Artist there back in the day? Yeah, 2005 to 7. So this is not your first time back, but, I mean, I really do feel like singing Aida is sort of like a big deal anywhere you go. 
I mean, it's like <laughs> you're Aida for the love of God. <laughs> they go full circle. So when I was in my second year here, one of the roles I did was the priestess. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, backstage and looking at the Aida going, oh, I'm, cool I'm actually to ready to day. step in for the high priestess at any performance. At any yeah. given moment. <laughs> he, he, will, he will rush the stage. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. I'll put in, I'll put in words. Company. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of nice to come back and be doing, you know, what I was watching 10 years ago. Yeah. Crazy. Well, there, we don't have to get into it, but um, there is sort of like this topic in the air about mm. representation in opera and, you know, singers of color and maybe how, you know, we should get rid of old fashioned ways of doing operas that involve, you know, that, that specify, you know, races to be on stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, you've just been so great about this. And I mean, I'm just, I, as a person of color, personally, when I've heard about these stories and I've heard what your reaction has been, I just wanted to like tell everybody, look, this is how you do it. This is how you be classy. You're like one of the best singers in the world right now. And you are, you know, standing up for what should be the future of opera and you're not taking any crap, you know. And um, I don't know. I'm just. I just want to thank you for that. And I don't know if you want to oh, add any, add anything to that conversation right now. Um, it was yeah. After this summer and kind of being in a production that was backwards thinking in all ways, just because it was a historical production, and mm -hmm. I get why you want to keep the history of our kind of operas alive, but at the same time. Um, that's just kind of not where we are in America. <laughs> um, so I'm hopefully, I'm hoping Europe will slowly join us. But I got into our rehearsals the first day, and our chorus at Houston is, you know, as diverse as our city is. Our, one mm. of, our city is one of the most diverse cities in the country. And you wouldn't think it being in Texas, but it is. And um, uh, it just kind of going in there and seeing, you know, people represented and our this company is actually doing an amazing job with that and you know with the me too movement they've actually put policies in place to help so it's it's like mm. a night and day situation yeah. <laughs> to what i was in the summer and um yeah it's it's what, what it should be because you know yeah, music is for everyone the old-fashioned way is underestimating the intelligence of the audience. I mean, like, they're, they're already suspending their disbelief that somebody would sing an aria. We don't need to, like, oh, but we have this one detail we're leaving out now, and now they can't. It's, it's ruined for them, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but also you were, uh, after that production, you went to Canada, and you were part of that Turandot which mm -hmm. was also trying to solve a problem in a way, in a very creative way. And was that the one where they changed the names of Ping, Peng, and Pongs, like Bill and the yeah. and Karen from yeah, Finance or something like that? Or? That apparently was because um, we had a um, a consultant who was on the show, uh, a cultural consultant, I right. think they called it. Yeah. And it was the director, the director's like answer to that. Um, personally, I think the names aren't, the issue yeah with, sure um, sure with the representation but um yeah it was it because it was a robert wilson production it wasn't necessarily like you're in peking you're it, it was all very like his style which is something <laughs> unto his very own. Yeah, it was abstract yeah <laughs> yeah 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 
Yeah. And I've already made sure that uh, the productions that I'm doing in the future are in, if they're in any way, you know, suggesting, like, authenticity of uh, the place and time, I'm not going to be involved in them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for somebody else to do. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very conscious of doing those two roles. But um, I'm going to make sure that I follow my conscience and do them the way I want to do them. Oh, that's um, that's really amazing, and thank you for that. Really, um, genuinely, yeah. thank you for for that. It's 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 one of those things that we see often, especially uh, now that I've been on uh, I've been on this show for a while, and you know, monitoring every little situation that comes up. And I feel mm-hmm. like uh, n- there are not many people who have who feel they have the uh, the agency the agency to step out and, yeah. and and you know draw those lines in the sand as it were and it's not without consequence obviously mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's a, it's a very brave thing i think you're doing and uh something that you know i hope more people emulate <laughs> yeah. but i also want to just yeah. i want to end on a little bit of fun um can you pick one of your favorite uh colleagues that you work with regularly and just tell us a little bit about your friendship. I mean, I, I'm thinking of one specifically that whenever I see you two together, I'm like, oh, my God, that must be so much fun to hang out with them. Barton? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So just to let you know, so she's down in Houston right now doing Favorite at the same time mm-hmm. as our Aida. So um, we went and had barbecue at a gas station the other day. Nice. So that's Living how our the friendship dream. goes. <laughs> You guys should have your own TV show, just hanging out. Just <laughs> I would, hanging out, I would watch you guys eat barbecue and talk about opera so bad. <laughs> oh, my God, a barbecue opera show. Oh, that'd be so good. Oh, now I'm hungry, Oliver. <laughs> well, Tamara Wilson, we will definitely uh, be looking for your return to Chicago and any time that you make it on another. Have you made an HD broadcast yet? You haven't yet. And, and I have not yet. Okay. Yet. What are they waiting for? <laughs> we'll call them that right up right after this and demand that you're on the next one. Exactly. But thank you for everything you do and congratulations on everything so far. And congratulations for being a guest on Opera Box Score. Now you've really made it. It's been an honor. I mean, my entire career has culminated to this moment. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we wish you the best for 2020 and we hope to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Have a good night, y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to. A new law in California. Oh, you want to say something? I just want to credit that was from the 2016 Richard Tucker Awards. That was an aria from Idui Foscari by Verdi. And of course, that was our guest, Tamara Wilson. Ah, So, such an excellent guest. A new law in California meant to make it harder for companies to classify workers as independent contractors is causing ripples through the artistic world, especially for small arts organizations. Last week, Island City Opera announced that it would be canceling a scheduled performance of Dame Ethel Smith's The Wreckers due to, quote, significant administrative and financial requirements, end quote, stemming from the new law. Other companies have also been feeling the heat as well. 
Now, this is kind of an interesting situation because it's one of those things where uh, I, I feel like uh, um, a lot of the things that uh, Tamara uh, was talking about uh, in terms of, you know, the gig work, the trying to figure out how you're classified in different countries, different cities, different states, uh, figuring out how to live on, on you know, independent contract work um, – all of these things are are things that singers and performers and uh, artists of any area uh, tend to kind of uh, you know be a little bit mad about, and uh, so you know it makes sense to sort of demand laws that would change that. But here we have uh, what appears to be an attempt to uh, make it harder for companies to exploit gig workers, um, actually potentially causing some harm, depending on who you ask. And I'd be really interested, Oliver, to kind of hear your perspective as a singer, um, specifically uh, as to what you kind of think about the whole situation. Well, anything that changes uh, what somebody's going to earn after they've already thought they're going to earn it is right. bad, in my opinion. So, like, if this law was was going to be put out and it was going to start enforcing it, and these contracts already existed, uh, and now this this small, relatively small company, uh, Island City Opera, has to cancel these contracts or postpone them. Uh, that's just bad. That's just, I mean, that just is horrible for everybody involved, mm -hmm. for the audience, for the artists, obviously. And it's a, as but, you said earlier, it's a, um, by, an opera by Ethel Smith, a, yeah. you know, an underperformed uh, woman composer. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a it does feel like a tragedy that it's you know, not being performed. And I, based on, I think this is the only one that I've heard of that's been definitively canceled, but they're post, definitely... It's been postponed. We don't know if it's been right, canceled, but, uh, yeah, right. but yeah. Um, uh, to to but, get the exact same people again for another contract, this would be really difficult. It's going to be know? tricky. Yeah. Um, and but they were trying to um, give those people work surrounding another production that's happening in the air. There's like a dialogue of the Carmelites happening nearby. So right. they were trying to make it so that certain musicians could make it to both shows, you right. know. It's one of those, uh, from what I understand, the law essentially says in this case um, that uh, companies can, uh, who employ workers up to a certain amount of time, um, the, the time threshold is much lower to uh, to call them Employees. a full employee, yeah, rather which than would entail you know, benefits yeah. on all those sorts of things. Um, well, here's a really interesting uh, thought on it from... A friend of mine who uh, is on the faculty at New England Conservatory uh, is Dr. Ian Howell. Some of you may know him. I'm going to go ahead and just read uh, from his Facebook page. Uh, Potentially unpopular opinion. Maybe doing away with structural elements of the gig economy is not a bad thing. Mm. I know that the San Francisco Classical Voice article is making the rounds, and everyone assumes it's, and it's the end of the opera industry. But just looking over the standards to be met to determine if someone is an employee, I'm starting to think that the burden should be on an organization to demonstrate that the people it hires are actually contractors. Mm. Do you actually have independence in the way you choose to fulfill the requirements of the contract? Do you choose when, where, or for how long you work? No. I think you're an employee. Uh, is, is the task that you are performing central to the mission and purpose of the organization? Yes, I think you're an employee. If Are you engaged in a profession or trade where you provide the same service to the other organizations? Yes. Or maybe you're an independent contractor. But the first two tests negate that. 
I think before people start to fret whether they're impacted by this, they should think about how they're structured. If you're an independent artist looking to hire a collaborator, you just hire the collaborator. If you run a company, even a small not-for-profit, I'm starting to think of, of the moral thing to do and the path that is advantageous for the performer is to work the 22% overhead into your budget. I think it'll be such a better deal to performers in the long run that it will make your gig more attractive. I think this is important even if the short term it means, in the short term it means that fewer people work for better conditions. To be clear, for performers, you want a company paying your taxes for you. It is better if you can be saved from having to track deductions, and the standard deduction is insanely high now. For potential employers, don't stress about payroll. There are companies out there to manage this, and they're not insanely expensive. I think this could be really good for everybody. This is a definitely, I think, uh, I really think that that's sort of my feeling, not to just steal our... <laughs> Ian Howell's <laughs> idea. Oh, oh, yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, I do think that the, the there is, um, the system as it currently exists for independent contractors is, you know, just not tenable uh, in, the, in, in the long term, you know. And sure, there, I, I do think that there are, there are companies that are going to uh, have trouble because of this. Um, but I've always been kind of of the opinion that if you are in an arts organization, you should already be trying to give more for your employee, em- employees than is the norm. So that when these changes happen, you are in a better position to say, oh, this is what we've already done for years. You know, um, it's uh, it's like a, a friend of mine uh, uh, once said, if you if you are going to go out to dinner one night and you can't afford the tip, yeah, you can't afford the dinner. No, I totally agree with you, but I'm just saying like this. These laws, I don't know if they, you know, opera is planned out years in advance, right? And if these laws got put into action and now they it's affecting in January, it's affecting you yeah. know people's budgets that they'd already planned. For example, um, the San Francisco Chronicle reports that Opera Parallel. Uh, says it will this this new law will require will will increase payroll costs by thirty percent, and that you know thirty percent is for a small organization. That's that can just it's a that's, lot. That's the end, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, it, for sure there there are. I, I am a little bit torn as far as uh, smaller organizations go because I think a lot of their flexibility comes from the fact that they have smaller budgets and they and that breeds a lot of creativity that creates a lot of interesting art um but at the same time i i think that these ideas these these sorts of laws are the kind of laws you need to be putting forward not just for the arts but outside the arts as well gig work is the bane of my generation's existence (laughs) quite frankly i mean i'm not a young man anymore i'm still doing gigs to make ends meet and it's it's not fun. On a side note, <laughs> donate now to Opera Box Score so we can get paid. Help Oliver get health insurance. <laughs> but we, we, if you have a uh, something you want to add to this conversation or any of the stories that are coming up in the two-minute drill, please go ahead and call 847-866-9687 if you're listening on Monday night. If you're listening to the podcast... Don't call. <laughs> We're not here. Confused. We're not here on Wednesday. <laughs> you just start talking to them about the gig economy. Uh, anyway, I do think that this is a, this is a, a conversation that's going to be repeated, not just in the arts but el- elsewhere as well. I believe there was actually a lawsuit uh, against it already by uh, I think a, like a truckers union or something like that. So it's not confined to the arts. Um, but at the same time, I do think we also have to acknowledge that that um, these kinds of laws. Uh, are not 
are, are there's going to be some collateral damage, obviously, uh, and without a better safety net for that collateral damage, there's not much that can be done to totally fix it. You know, because uh, I, I was thinking about how I might change this law to quote unquote fix it, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't really think of much of a solution that wouldn't leave like loopholes that were big enough for large corporations who are, you know, actually, you know, uh, uh, taking advantage of their workers that they could, couldn't could claw open, you know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, so it's it's very difficult. I think the only solution I, I would posit would be just like, okay, give a, a more funding to the arts so they can afford um, that sort of increase in base pay and, uh, and in benefits and things like well, with, that. Well, with all the gigs that are out, I mean, like, I understand why this law is existing and why right. it should exist on uh, in larger ways across the nation but with the gig economy there are organizations that are getting rich like Airbnb is getting rich Lyft is getting rich Uber is getting rich you know and meanwhile there are all these subcontractors these contractors who get a little piece of the, their tiny little piece of the pie and don't get health insurance and are working as much as Anybody else is working to put food on the table to make ends meet, maybe even more, maybe more than 40 hours a week, and have no protections from the government. So this is that's so backwards, how the way we live here in the U.S. And I have a friend who's an American expat living in France telling me that she is, you know, an artist. And it took her a while mm-hmm. to get an artist-like status in France. But now she has this protection that if she doesn't make a certain amount in a month as an artist, the government, like, makes up the difference. Can you oh, imagine? Really? Can you imagine oh, that? God. Yeah. It, it seems so utopian. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ironic because, you know, Paris is basically just been wall-to-wall po- protests for the past yeah. two months. But uh, imagine when we, we put up a podcast basically once a week, maybe 50 weeks out of the year. Like, we want to get paid for the podcast 51 and 52 that we don't put up, you know? Yeah. We want our portion of that zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, I think what's happening right now is that Oliver and I are unionizing right here, yeah. live on the air. <laughs> exactly, George. <laughs> We're coming it's for you, George. across the picket line. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but this is definitely something that uh, is going to be occurring. I think these kinds of debates will be occurring more and more frequently, especially in the cu- current political climate. You think of all the strikes and the orchestras and things like yeah. that. There is there's, there is sort of a point where a lot of things are going to give, and they're not always going to uh, give cleanly, I think. Yeah. And we'll be here Well, to... hopefully that's the new topic for 2020 and going yeah. forward. Maybe we're done with uh, the reckoning <laughs> of <laughs> bad men behaving badly. Uh, uh, and Probably we can now not. talk about money. <laughs> uh, you know, and let's not be embarrassed to talk about it, folks. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, oh, I, I, as I always say, you should be paid what you're worth, and you should say what you're worth, you know, if you can figure it out. <laughs> Let me know when you do so I can figure that out as well. All right. The Lincoln Center is underwater. That's up next. Only an opera box score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after Listed, this. This is great. Listed is must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill. Week after week, Opera Box Score is talking to opera's most important players, aggregating all the news in the week and amplifying the best work in a crowded field. If you're new to the show, look back in our, archi- in our archives and hear interviews with the likes of artistic director of Opera Humboldt's Opa Alright, ready? If you're new to the show... Look back in our archives to hear interviews with the likes of artistic director of Opera Omaha's One Festival, James Dara, Grammy-winning conductor, Michael 
Christy. And Baroque Diva, Emuka Barat. It's way more exciting than watching the Bears-Packers game the other day. It is. That defined a new level of mediocrity for our Chicago All I, Bears. It was as soon as the Bears had a chance. It was how can Mitch Trubisky screw this up. Also, this banter, I can't read. This is how the show really goes. Impress the date you take to the opera by listening to our OBS Hall of Fame segments where we take a deep dive into the works and artists that you need to know. Toby, didn't you induct yourself into the Hall of Fame I once? did, and you need to know that. And if you don't have time to keep Keep up with all the news from Opaland. Jump right to the two-minute drill. Our team's hot takes on the week's opera headlines, including who's getting fired and hired in the fast-paced world of opera. Fast-paced world of opera. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box score to your podcast favorites or just stream it from the Opera Box score page on SoundCloud. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land over the past week. After three years of reconstruction, Prague's State Opera House reopened last week with a program of Wagner, Mozart, Janacek, Strauss, and others. The building dates all the way back to 1888. Roberto Alagna's career has seen a lot of changes over the past couple of decades, but he's taking it back to basics with La Boheme at the Met. The last time he performed the role there was in 1996. A plea to Anna Netrebko in the New York Times asks the soprano to, quote, consider new opera, please. The article makes the case for championing uh, new work uh, on behalf of singers, or singers rather, championing new work, and puts Anna on blast for not doing that. Link to that article will be on our website. The organizers of the Semper Opera Ball in Dresden have put out a statement refuting the claim of that tenor Yusuf Ivazov husband of Anna Netrebko, refuses to sing with Armenian soprano Ruzan Mnatshin on the grounds of Mnatshin's Armenian heritage. The organizers said, quote, at no time had there been a contract with Ruzan Mnatshin for the performance at Semper Oper Ball, nor did Yusuf Ivazov ever make the collaboration with a fellow singer dependent on her origin. They chalked the allegation up to miscommunication uh, there. New Yorkers just got a taste of the, re- of the real climate disaster Venice has been suffering when a water main broke just north of Columbus Circle, creating a temporary lake outside Lincoln Center, snarling the mor- Monday morning commute. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to break out the gondolas for that one. According to the site Bachtrack, the top 100 conductors in the world in terms of number of performances includes only eight women. That's a big jump from 2013, however, when there was only one. Other highlights include 13 women composers in the top 50 for 2019, up from seven in 2016. On the disabled list, Michaela Mark- Martins is out, and Catherine Marin and Melody Moore are in at Houston Grand Opera for their upcoming Aida with Tamara Wilson. Marin and Moore will be taking up the role of M. Neris uh, for the duration of the show's run. And on this day, January 13th, we celebrate the birthdays of German Baroque composer Johann Christoph Graupner, born in 1683, Italian baritone Renato Busson, born in 1936, and Peruvian tenor Juan Diego Flores, born in 1973. In 1910, it was the first ever live broadcast of an opera from the Metropolitan Opera over the radio waves. That's Cav Padge if you're keeping score. And in another historic moment for the Met, Sarah Caldwell became the first woman to conduct an opera there in 1976. Mozart's La Finta Giardiniera premiered on this day in Munich in 
1775. Rimsky-Korsakov's opera The Maid of Peskov premiered this day at the Marinsky, and Ellen Reed's opera Winter's Child had its first performance as a work in progress at the Prototype Festival on this day in 2015. And that is your two-minute drill. And of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. The recording we just heard was of Juan Diego Flores. That was singing. a live performance uh, yes. of Si Ritrovarla from La Cenorentula. Ah. Oh, God. I mean, if you listen to opera now back in the day, I was crazy. <laughs> I really, I was crazy about him. I still who, like him a who lot. Is it? I mean, well, he, I mean, like his voice never really uh, deepened and darkened the way sure. some people might have hoped it would have, like as he got older. But that's okay. He still sings Rossini like nobody's business, like no one's yeah. business. And it's just such a his phrasing has always been so um, impeccable, elegant. You know, like for <laughs> Rossini, you know, um, no, so it's hard to sing Rossini elegantly. Sometimes oh, you just got to like, just got to sing it, you know, but he really knows how to shape it. And it's so sweet. And I just, I just love his, you know, Cenerentola, his like his comic romantic characters. Um, yeah. Her- heroes. They were great. Um, but speaking of tenors, Roberto Alagna, uh, you know, made his big splash I don't know, back in the 90s. I think it was 1990, exactly. Yeah, when he was uh, just married to Angela Giorgio and his wife had died, and that was sort of like they were like the it couple, and you know they were getting cast in productions together, and uh, he was crazy. He was bat poop crazy back in the day. <laughs> I mean, there were some stories about him like cracking like on like a high C and like, the audience was like, you know, disappointed. He would come out in front of the curtain and just to show that he could sing the C or whatever, he oh, would just wild. sing it like a cappella, and then he would crack again. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I'm mean, like, he was just. When so... did this happen? I don't. I forget. I remember when it happened because we talked about it on opera, on opera now. But I do remember my first ever introduction to Roberto Alagna was I. I think it was Roberto Alagna. I, I, I'm 90 percent sure. Uh, it was a performance at La Scala where he got booed off stage. I just remember he just shook his fist at the audience and just left, <laughs> which is uh, such a great move. I love it. Yeah. Um, no, but he's always been a little bit nutso. Uh, there are some really fun videos of him. Like, I think there's one video of him, like, cooking food and, like, wearing, like, a karate outfit. Like, <laughs> That's uh, what I cook food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I have to say that, like, his sort of recklessness and his just attitude towards life really came across in his singing. And there are some moments of his singing. I'm thinking of especially his um, Hoffmann from Opera Nacional de Lyon mm. um, that were just so exciting uh, because he, did, he didn't seem to care and he seemed to have access to that really exciting part of the tenor voice, like, you know, the passaggio and just above the passaggio that were very easy for him. Right. And he could just really make some thrilling moments. And I'm not mad at, at his career. And, like, it's interesting to read this article 
uh, which is also in the New York Times about him coming back to Rodolfo, which is a role he you know sang whatever thirty years ago, and he has to sort of lighten his voice because he's been singing things like Radames and Kalaf, and now he has to you know thin out the chords a little bit and sing a little bit higher and be. And he says that his approach is going to be to actually to read the score. He's going to like actually <laughs> what did what did Puccini write? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad he's figured out that's important. Uh, I I was looking at a different article in the New York Times. I. Think think as my sort of highlight for the for the week um I, literally I, when i was reading reading it the, the title of the of the uh, article uh literally has you know the uh, the the please is a separate sentence so it says anna trebko consider new opera period please <laughs> which is just such a a great way to introduce it uh but it actually makes a very interesting point uh and, and not not just one that i think is limited to uh, uh, Anna Netrebko, I think it's uh, it's a little bit more universal. So essentially, sort of the, the thesis is that um, uh, Anna Netrebko and a lot of unnamed singers who are who are larger names are not focused on championing new works. They're they're finding the the tried and true favorites. Uh, they're they're going out and they're doing Puccini. They're doing. Uh, they're doing Turandot, and you're like, oh wow, super neat. Uh, and then there's then anything beyond you know 1910 is just not on their on their list. Uh, and it really makes the uh, uh, the uh, a fairly convincing argument, I think, that in order to sort of sell newer operas, a lot of audience members who are not me need uh, need a little bit of a a helping hand, so to speak, from like a starring role. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the big the big example I think that the article brings up is Renee Fleming <clears throat> doing Streetcar, Streetcar Desire, Yeah, um, and it's it's very much uh, and excuse me, <clears throat> um, uh, it's very much uh, a thing that I I feel like does get a little bit neglected nowadays because we do still have large stars with star power, um, but I I always feel like I hear conversations about new works. Um, and I hear conversations about the stars, and I rarely hear much crossover, except in very few specific cases. So this article is really <laughs> centering in on Anna Netrebko and just saying, why don't, you, why don't you do that? Why don't you... I mean, since she's the world's biggest opera star right now. Absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we really want her to do that. We actually <laughs> want her to do that. I mean, I'm happy we talked to Eileen Perez last year, mm-hmm. and she said one of her favorite experiences was doing Great Scott with, you know, the Jake Heggie production with, oh, uh, yes, with yes, Joyce yes, Donato, yes. and I forget who was all in that, you know. And I think Joyce Donato is doing her, her share of, like, championing... New opera. I mean, lots she, of revitalized older works too. Yeah, she and exactly Baroque opera, but she also was in the you know Dead Man Walking right. story. You know, so um, I think we're going to have to count on people of of that ilk. I think that, however, there's there's a certain level of. Uh, I think it's more like her stature at opera houses that tend to be a little bit more less interested in new works yeah thinking of the met specifically yeah because uh, the uh, the she's been the met's darling since she came first showed up there yeah. uh and uh they've used that to do nothing but <clears throat> get uh get uh ticket sales from her yeah, star power for tosca and, and, for, not, yeah. and not not to promote anything else and i think there's a sort of a artistic responsibility there that comes with fame perhaps um, that she's not fully taking advantage of. But at the same time, 
I do like the sort of subversive underdogs singing something new and weird every now and again. That surprises no one. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this thing with her husband just kind of unfolds Unhap unfurled today. Today, Unfur- like over yeah. the course of a single day. Yeah. Um. So there's this weird press outlet from Armenia called Armen Press that put right. out this article saying that Ruzan uh, Manadashian uh, was fired from the Dresden Opera Ball, uh, but the Dresden Opera Ball came out with a statement saying actually she never was hired in the first place and it has nothing to do with has nothing to do with Yusuf uh, Avazov. Um, who in his own on his own Facebook page says, "Yeah, I may have some problems with uh, Armenia as an Azerbaijan because like there's long-standing, you know, whatever Tensions. bad blood between us, but uh, that doesn't mean I'm not a professional and I can't go to work, you know, and I will be singing at the opera ball." And <laughs> he finishes. What does he say? His last sentence is really strange. Uh, and I'll be by myself for something like that. <laughs> we, I'm going to read what he says. I'm going to quote him because it's so strange. Uh, I'm sure it's translated from Russian, so it's not really a great um, translation. But he says, uh, where does it say? Um, I have worked with Armenian colleagues like Maria Gulagina and Gevorg Akopian. So please don't change the facts and don't believe those who do. As As it was announced in the beginning, I will appear in Semper Opera Ball alone without any other singers, period. Right. I think this is sort of an kind of an interesting story. It was kind of hard to get the background on because, you know, you're looking at uh, Google Translate for languages that you don't know, and Google yeah. still doesn't know. You know? And then the Semper Opera um, <laughs> pub, pub PR release was clearly written in German, and right. then somebody just like Google Translate it to English for the English version. It's so badly it, translated. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's it's kind of hard to tell what's going on, but it's it's also it does seem to be genuinely down to misunderstanding. But the uh, it's a sort of a interesting lesson in fake news, where there are. people in various uh, parts of the conflict who are willing to capitalize on uh, an unfound, what appears to be an unfounded rumor in order to stoke tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, who have, uh, and there's uh, lots of bad blood there. Like I I had to like sit down with a computer and do tons of Googling to figure out exactly what everything was going on. Alexa, tell me about this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, it's, it's outside my wheelhouse uh, very much so, but uh, it's, it's also uh, kind of a, an important, I think, the thing that will apply to people who are not uh, part of that conflict or part of either of those uh, places. So um, the Golden, I mean, uh, the Oscar nominations came out today, and there was only one act, actor of color that was nominated, uh, and uh, no women directors were nominated for best director. And we're having this article here that the top 100 conductors in the world. Uh, right now, there are um, eight, 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 eight are women, you know. So, I mean, opera is behind, but at least we're still on track with Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a pretty yeah. low bar. <laughs> I do think that uh, uh, if you look at the if you look at the article and compare sort of like past uh, the past few years uh, stati- statistics to um, we'll probably put this uh, on our website. Uh, if you compare all of the uh, all the data, it, it is an improvement. There's more uh, there's more uh, women conductors. There's more uh, women uh, uh, composers who are well represented. Um, but there is still obviously a lot of work that needs to be done. All right, we gotta wrap it up for today. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
Do you have a good call for me, Oliver? Well, uh, are you going to read George's? Oh, I'll read George's. Okay, yeah. so well, let's take one from George. George went to the Met and HD production. He did, and I will be going on Wednesday because I me missed too, it I on Saturday. <laughs> so sad. This is for the Votsek Met Live in HD. Um, he says it's uh, the concept is Votsek as a PTSD-afflicted World War One soldier. He recommends to not see this production high, so there go my plans. Uh, Peter Matei, Votsek, and Elsa van der Hever uh, are perfectly cast. Christian Von Horn in a great Compromiro role as the doctor. Hilariously, the cast interviews were after the show, since so it's a one act. Host Eric Owens calls the interviews uh, the post-game show, which is very on-brand for us. Overall, I think a positive review from George, which is not a surprise, because George strikes me as a fan of William Kentridge, who yeah. did the production. But I hear that the, the boy puppet is distracting. And, and just very get a, spooky, probably. Yeah, just get a boy. <laughs> um, so Stephanie Blythe is doing this drag show called Blithely ever after where she plays her alter ego who's a tenor apparently named Blithely Oratonio. <laughs> so Blithely Oratonio, uh, which is Stephanie Blythe in drag. As and a uh, very uh, surprisingly convincing beard. Yes, uh, that will be part of the Lincoln Center American Songbook on January 30th. I'm so jealous of any of you who get to go see that. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskell and Somil Songvi. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our special guest, Tamara Wilson, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, however the national championships of football turn out. We're back next week on Monday, January 20th at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news, more hot takes, and more of whatever it is that George brings to the table. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.